Lord save the Queen! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen. I'm your host, Anne Gripper, and we have a tremendous guest with us today. We have our first ever doctor on the show. It is Dr. Alan Jeffries. Welcome to the show, Alan. Uh, thanks very much. So don't worry, Dr. Jeffries is not here because of the coronavirus. He is a senior curator in the, se- the Second World War team at the Imperial War Museum. So what is your, what is your doctor of instead, Alan? Uh, in in history, yeah, um, uh, yeah, and my specialist area is actually uh, India and the Indian Army in the Second World War, but I've also written on the home front. Excellent. So this is an episode that I have been wanting to do for a little while because, as as we all know, the royal family had a. a kind of had a very interesting role during the Second World War. I'm sure lots of people, lots of our listeners will have watched The King's Speech, that Oscar-winning film with Colin Firth. The Queen obviously famously took a role sort of working during the Second World War as well. And then in this time of coronavirus crisis, when um, we've had another extraordinary broadcast from the Queen, in fact, so we are recording this we are, what are we, Thursday after Easter. So we've had the Queen's original broadcast message when she sent her message to the country and the Commonwealth. And then we've had her Easter message since. But this episode will be going out in a couple of weeks' time. So who knows what will have happened and evolved since then. But there is something about the coming together of the country and looking to the royal family that I thought it would be interesting to explore through looking back at history. So I'm delighted that Dr. Jeffries has joined us. So can you give us just a little bit of a context as you see it, as far as kind of the role of the royal family during the war and I guess what what their position was as such at that time? Um, Well, I think uh, the royal family were absolutely essential for keeping up the morale of the country during the Second World War. Um, And they all took on very important roles. So, for example, the um, the king was um, nominally in uh, in charge of the armed forces, so he was an admiral of the fleet in the Royal Navy, a field marshal in the army, and marshal of the uh, of uh, the RAF. Um, he himself actually had been um, uh, in the Royal Navy during the Second World War. So, as a twenty year old, he'd been serving on HMS Collingwood during the Battle of Jutland in nineteen sixteen. In fact, he's the only 20th century monarch to have fought in a conflict zone. Um, And then obviously other members of the royal family. um, So uh, Queen Elizabeth was uh, Commandant-in-Chief of the Auxiliary Territorial Service, um, the Women's Auxiliary, um, sorry, the Women's Royal Naval Service, and um, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force as well. Um, And then... Princess Elizabeth uh, trained as a driver and, um, well, tra- trained as in driving vehicle maintenance and became a, a driver in the Auxiliary or Territorial Service in 1945. Um, and her sister, Princess Margaret, was in the Girl Guides and later joined the Sea Rangers. But it wasn't just the, the royal family themselves, also uh, the king's uh, younger brothers. So his um, Prince Henry, the Duke of Gloucester, um, was the chief liaison officer of the British Expeditionary Force and then later on became uh, Governor General of Australia uh, towards the end of the war. Uh, And his wife, the Duchess of Gloucester, was Air Commandant of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. 
and then and uh, the younger brother, Prince George, the Duke of Kent, uh, he originally worked in intelligence in the Admiralty, but later became responsible for welfare, welfare in the Royal Air Force. And his wife, the Duchess of Kent, was commandant of the um, of the Wrens, the Women's Royal Naval Service. And the Duke of Kent himself was unfortunately killed in an air crash on the 25th of August, 1942. Uh, and there was a very small funeral service in St George's Cap Chapel at uh, Windsor Castle. And Noel Coward, who was there, the, the famous dramatist, director and actor, and he wrote in his diary, and I quote, I tried hard not to cry, but it was useless. I was relieved and heartened to see that both Dickie and the King were doing the same thing. Uh, and Dickie refers to uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten. But I think from, from all that, it's quite clear that uh, the royal family all played extremely important roles um, throughout the war. My, my grandmother always had great admiration for the Queen. And she, you know, she knows how to strip down an engine. This is kind of like a, a, proper, a proper woman. So what, what was the... What was the Queen's job in the ATS? And let's start. Let's start with that. So yeah, I think she, she was a driver. Um, she she joined in um, 1945, um, uh, and I think she joined as the rank of second subaltern. But just before sort of VJ day, she was promoted to a junior commander, which would be the equivalent rank I think in the army would have been captain. Uh, and then and 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 there are so many famous images of her. Um, uh, 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 driving for the ATS and uh, and quite a few in in the um, uh, in the IWM um, and she also had other roles. I mean, for instance, when she was sixteen, um, she was um, the king made a commander in chief of the Grenadier Guards, and um, she made her first sort of uh, inspection of troops. Um, so you know, quite 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 early on in nineteen forty two. We obviously heard recently in her address to the nation the kind of echoes of the Second World War with the reference, you know, that final moving message that echoed uh, Dame Vera Lynn's words. And we saw the picture of the Queen and Princess Margaret doing their address to the children um, during the war as well. So did, did the way that the royal family communicated with people change, do you think, during that time? Um, yeah, and I think they probably got more effective as, as they went on. Um, so Princess Elizabeth, she did that broadcast in 1940 to evacuees on Children's Hour. Um, and the Queen also did a, a broadcast um, uh, on the role of um, supporting women during the war and how important their role was. Um, but the most important ones, I think, were the addresses uh, broadcast by the King, um, and he he did them, you know, every Empire Day, every Christmas Day, at the beginning of the war on the 3rd of September 1939, on VE Day, on VJ Day. And um, and I think uh, you mentioned the King's Speech. Uh, so, you know, his, his speech problems are well documented and and obviously um, Lionel Logue helped him throughout the war. But, but, but uh, uh, well, you know, so some of the words, I, I think, are quite... Um, uh, you know, uplifting and um there was one 24th of may 1940 on empire on empire day and the king gave a speech and he and he used these words against against our honesty is set dishonor against our faithfulness is set treachery against our justice brute force and he continued let us go forward to that task as one man and with god's help we shall not fail 
And then he, uh, and apparently he wrote afterwards in his diary, he said, easily my best effort so far. So um, uh, he, he obviously got more confident as the, um, uh, uh, the, the more broadcasts he had to do and, 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 and got better at it. And do we have any sense of how many people would sort of tune in and listen to those or whether the royal family got any feedback from from the nation on them at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I, in the thousands, you know, literally, is one of, the radio was the most popular during the war, but I, I don't know the um, the numbers in particular. But I've got one particular feedback, which I thought was really good. Um, so in in the IWM, there's a diary by a lady called um, Gladys Cox. Um, she lived in West Hampstead, and her um, she lived with her husband, um, Ralph, who was a retired uh, lawyer, I think. Um, and they were unfortunately bombed out during the... Um, during the Blitz, um, so they they lost um, their house, and, and and he was particularly upset because he he'd been a collector of antiquarian books, and they were all destroyed. But anyway, I, dig- I digress. And in in her um, diary, she was listening to Queen Elizabeth uh, on a broadcast in November 1949, and she said um, she was really impressed. And I quote: "Her Majesty has a very pleasant, fresh, young voice, and her delivery and enunciation was perfect." I never heard better. At the mention of separation from her children evacuated, as they are indeed to Scotland, her voice wavered ever so slightly. So that gives an idea of just from one person's point of view. But um, uh, I think they're, they're very important, all the broadcasts, for um, keeping up morale across the country um, on the home front, but also on the fighting fronts as well. Yeah, it's interesting that, that it meant some, so much to someone that they actually recorded it in their in their diary it's really fascinating the things that people choose to kind of note note down for their personal memories so you mentioned about the the kind of the war front so would these messages or specific messages get sent out to to the to the people who were fighting abroad as well or how would how would they um, well engage? yeah i mean uh, so there there would have been access to the radios but also um the king in particular he visited a lot of the fighting fronts. So he went to Italy, he went to North Africa, he went to Malta, he went to Normandy, um, he went to Holland, and there's film footage and um, uh, photographs of, of his visits, again, in the IWM. Um, uh, and w- one of the ones in particular was... Um, so he visited North Africa in June 1943, um, one of the um, and, and was driven along in an open top car on the beach of Algiers and cheered by all the soldiers, um, and and then knighted uh, General Montgomery, the commander of Eighth Army, on the nineteenth of June at Tripoli. But he also insisted that he visit the island of Malta um, to uh, and, and and got his way to acknowledge the bravery and courage of the Maltese people who had endured heavy German bombardment. So on the 20th June 1943, he stood on HMS Aurora uh, whilst coming into Valletta Harbour, which was crowded with people cheering and, and uh, people continued to, cl- to clap and cheer him for the duration of this seven hour tour. Um, so not only were the royal family important on the um, home front, they were extremely uh, important for, for keeping up morale on the fighting fronts as well, in, in specifically the king. 
And what sort of stage of, I guess, hotness would would the king go and visit these places? Would it tend to be after they had uh, after there had been a victory, or if they were ready to go into something in preparation? Or I guess how close was he to the action and the danger? I guess I'm asking. Oh, so yeah, always after the um, the, the the action, basically. Yeah. So um, never. Ne- um, there was one time when. Churchill uh, wanted to be on board HMS Belfast um, at the D-Day landings, and the king said he'd go too. And uh, I've got a quote from his um, uh, private secretary, Sir Alan Lascelles, who's um, always known as Tommy, so Tommy Lascelles' diaries. And he, um, he wrote, and this is on the 30th of May, 1944, Winston, lunching with the king today, revealed that he proposed to watch the opening of Overlord, which was the the operational name for the D-Day landings, from one of the bombarding cruisers, which, again, was HMS Belfast. And when the king said he would do ditto, did not, according to the king, discourage him. And then Tommy uh, Lascelles writes, this will never do, but I think I, sh- I shook the king by asking him whether he thought the project would be quite fair to the queen and whether he was prepared to face the possibility of having to advise Princess Elizabeth on the choice of her first Prime Minister in the event of her father and Winston being sent to the bottom of the English Channel. Another point, of course, is the paralysing effect which the presence on board of either the Sovereign or the PM or both would inevitably have on the unfortunate captain trying to fight his ship in the middle of what can only be an inferno. So as you can imagine, um, uh, the the Prime Minister was uh, persuaded that he that he that he shouldn't really go. Sounds like they came to a good conclusion. And it, you, that, you talking about that has just reminded me of a trip I took I can't even, a couple of years ago now. My husband and I, we enjoyed a long weekend down in Studland Bay and we had one walk and we found a little Fort Henry bunker. It's called, I've just pulled it up on Wikipedia now, where um, the brilliantly named Exercise Smash which was part of the preparations for D-Day, was happening out in Studham Bay and the king went down there with Churchill and they were watching all of these exercises. So I think um, it makes much more sense to watch the exercises than the actual, uh, than the actual unfolding um, drama. Because, yes, you know, it's, difficult. It's, big, it's a big enough deal having the royals come to visit. And, you know, we've, had, we've talked on past shows about the efforts and the lengths that, that places go to and the sort of palaver that that comes with it you don't need to be doing that when you're in the midst of fighting for for your lives and king and country and such oh yes so um you mentioned uh the 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 queen mum well the queen as she was then talking about uh her children having been evacuated and, and that separation and what was the sort of situation for the royal family in terms of where they lived during the war and when the children were away and and that kind of things and how were those decisions taken um i think generally the um princess elizabeth and princess margaret were um at windsor castle and uh, the king and queen were often at buckingham palace but obviously traveled back to windsor castle on the whole um one um archie st clair so it's Archibald Sinclair. He, he was a minister of air in, in um, Churchill's government. And he um, he asked the king um, quite early on in 1940 whether he would remain in... Um, um, in uh, yeah, whether, whether he would uh, evacuate, uh, which the king apparently replied, 
and I quote, that I would naturally remain in London as long as the government remained there. And that was basically his his stance for the rest of the war. Um, and there, there, there was even a, a song during the um, 1940-41 Blitz that became very popular and it was called The King is Still in London. And London, obviously, along with other cities, you know, suffered very heavily from from bombing raids and that kind of thing. Was there was there a sense of concern and worry from the people around the king that he was deciding to stay in London, or was it felt that kind of the impact on the nation was actually more valuable and that kind of I don't know stoic stoic nature, if you like, of the royal family mattered. Yeah, no, I think uh, pe- people did try and persuade them to um, to evacuate. And even, you know, um, there was talk of going to Canada, but um, uh, the king was uh, was adamant he wouldn't he wouldn't go. And Buckingham Palace was was hit at one stage, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so during the Blitz, um, which uh, started on 7th of September 1914, continues till, till May 1941. Um, and London was one of the main targets. So London was bombed 72 consecutive days, barring two because of bad weather. And uh, 20,000 people died in London during the Blitz. So it was a, 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 a big target for the Luftwaffe. And, uh, and Buckingham Palace uh, was, a, was a target in, in itself. So Buckingham Palace was, I think, bombed 16 times um, and nine of which resulted in d- direct hits causing damage. So there was a, there was a bombing on the 9th of September. Um, a bomb fell near, um, uh, broke, broke all the windows and destroyed the swimming pool. And then, uh, and, and then a direct bombing raid on the 13th of September um, with the... Um, the bomber coming down the mall, um, and six bombs were dropped on the palace, um, and the gardens were damaged, and the chapel was destroyed. Uh, and again, I've got a, a quote from uh, Tommy Lascelles. It it's in a letter writing to to his wife. This is on the eleventh of September, nineteen forty. Um, so just after the the first um, bombing, he says, "Our bomb was a delayed action one, which fell up against the swimming pool in that excrescence." just to the left of my office window, beyond the garden entrance from which the king and queen always emerge for the garden party. It fell on Monday night and went off at 1.30am on Tuesday. It blew the north end of the bath out and smashed most of the windows all along the front, including all those of, of our offices and their majesty's sitting room. So we are living rather hugger-mugger in the back rooms, but I think we will all be straight again tomorrow. Their Majesties were photographed among the ruins, and early this morning I conducted a party of about forty journalists around them. Um, and I think perhaps that might have been the turning point um, for for uh, people seeing that um, the royal family were enjoying the Blitz as much as anyone else. Um, with these these forty journalists, and there's uh, famous images of the king and queen uh, standing in the rubble with people working. Uh, and and the, and this when famously the queen said she could now look the East End in the face. Because apparently, um, Harold Nicholson, who was an MP, um, he'd been working in the Ministry of Inf- uh, Information right early on. Um, and he writes in his diary that the King and Queen were initially booed in the East End right at the beginning of the Blitz, um, but obviously not after the bombing of Buckingham Palace. 
Well, so yeah, it, it did really change perceptions then by the sounds of things. I think so, yes. I think it made a big difference. And with the... The Queen, well, the Queen and the King, were they regular visitors to Blitz sites, sort of the aftermath of, of seeing what had happened and things? Oh, most definitely. I mean, they and, and all over the country as well. So uh, very much they went to the East End and across London, but um, the King also went up to Coventry, um, which was bombed very badly on the 14th of November in which about 600 people died. And he visited... Um, on the on the 16th um and the king queen went down to plymouth um uh, in between some very um nasty bombing raids um and 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 all over the country and then they also visited um you know factories and that kind of thing all over the country going um there was a a trip to south wales at once in 1944 1940 sorry 1941 looking at um uh, various factories ac- across South Wales. They um, and apparently, you know, productivity always increased after their visits. Oh, how interesting! And it's it, it's interesting the idea of you know they were able to they were able to carry on doing their sort of royal work, albeit in changed circumstances, going out and, and visiting places, which is what we you know we associate with the current royal family whereas today's today's crisis which is you know is still in the news frame rather than your history frame but the the royal family are evolving again to do things via skype or have phone calls and sort of share those videos and use the social media and all of the different different platforms that that so many of us are are having to do and i guess it's quite often if when there is a, a time of crisis things evolve and move forward really rapidly in a way that sometimes you would you know maybe maybe normally these changes might have taken I don't know another 20 years or something for for the royals to start doing these kinds of visits if they if they ever did but in a in a time of need people will will find a way to to do the thing that they think matters yeah and one thing I wanted to to add actually um because obviously um uh, London was also bombed in 1944-45 with a with a v1 pilot pilot's planes and the um, V2 rockets. And again, Buckingham Palace was hit on the 21st and the 26th of June, uh, destroying the King's tennis court and again, destroying the, many of the windows in the palace. Um, but the royal family remained and, and as you say, they adapted. Um, so King George moved his weekly Tuesday lunchtime meeting with the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, down to the palace shelter as a result. Oh, so they did have their own, they had their own sort of uh, bomb shelter at the palace. Yeah, uh, there was one in the palace and also in um, Windsor Castle as well. And do we have any sense of how they were set up inside? Because, you know, when I think about kind of air raids and bomb shelters in London, I guess I've got all those, the, the idea of people going down to, to shelter in the, in, in the underground stations and, and tunnels i think probably from films which may may be entirely wrong my my knowledge of the british the british home front on the on this of the second world war is probably not what it should be but how, you know how, what was it like do we have an understanding of what it was like for them in those shelters during the raids um i I, th- I think i think it was quite austere you know they um they very much uh um took on the austerity of the second world war you know so they had ration books and clothing coupons um when um, Eleanor Roosevelt came to stay with them, um, the wife of uh, President 
Roosevelt, uh, she was quite surprised. You know, there was like a line around the um, the bath so the water wouldn't go above that. One electric um, heater in a room. Um, the windows replaced with a sort of cheap substitute. And uh, and apparently when she went down to the dining room, she's quite impressed by the dining room. But um, but when the food was served up, it obviously was ration food, so very small portions. Um, so I think they live quite frugally. That's oh, interesting. And then, of course, the Queen famously needed um, ration coupons to buy the clothing, to, to buy the material for her for her wedding dress as well. So that kind of sense of you know, fine, it, it's a grand, it's a royal wedding, but that lasting impact of the war was still being felt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And going into the war, it hadn't, I guess it hadn't been that long since the abdication crisis. And then you'd had um, the Duke of Windsor, who should have been the king, who'd, who'd had friendship probably, or closer closer friendship than one might have liked with with Nazi Germany. Um, so going, in, going into the war, I guess the royal family may not have been in the sort of strongest public state perhaps um but did it really it feels like it came out the other side with a closer connection again with the with the country and sort of shaped the modern monarchy somewhat um yeah yeah, i think so but even even before that i think maybe you know a couple of years into uh king george's reign they um you know some of that popularity was coming back already i mean in 1939 even before the war they, um, they did a big tour of North America, um, and uh, you know, over six, apparently over sixteen million people saw them. Uh, but when they came back to um, London on the in June nineteen thirty nine, um, there was apparently fifty thousand people in the mall cheering them uh, their return. So um, perhaps that the you know the the dip in perhaps popularity in nineteen thirty six thirty seven. Uh, was it was increasing already by the beginning of the um, Second World War, and obviously increased, you know, considerably throughout the war. And in terms of the the lasting impact that that time had on the Queen, um, is there anything in particular that you have noticed that you think has really sort of stayed with her whether it's from her experience as an evacuee or as a um, working in the ATS um well I, I, perhaps the experience of her, her parents you know and their sort of sense of devotion uh and, and and duty to the nation i mean the um the queen mother later told the poet stephen spender that the war years have been the happiest of their lives during which the bombing of Buckingham Palace and the tours of London, the East End, had helped them empathise with their suffering across London and throughout the home front. And um, and perhaps that is is something that obviously is well within the memory of the, the present Queen and um, uh, 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 instilled in her from, from an early age, I suppose. It's a really interesting way to, to think about that time because it's, you know, it's such a different understanding of it and the the queen mum the queen as she was then she like she seemed to have a particularly um maybe it's just because she obviously had such a long life afterwards so i've had more exposure really to sort of awareness of what she was doing but she sort of had a a real morale boosting effect and and maybe a connection with people that was on a different level to the kings possibly 
I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I've seen that on media and that kind of thing, but I, I'm, I'm not so convinced. Um, you know, for example, on um, when all the crowds are in London on VE Day, they're all shouting for the king. Um, but definitely you get the impression as well that um, the Queen Mother, uh, or, or the Queen at the time, was um, uh, very highly thought of as, as well. Um, but I, I, I'm not so convinced by a sort of special connection. Maybe it's just uh, because she, I guess she did the sort of the, the softer side, is it fair to say that? I guess like the sort of more hospitals and and uh, the women at the women at home and uh, that kind of thing, rather than the sort of the, the soldiers and the, the abroad visits. So maybe it's just my, oh, maybe uh, yes, yeah. Because like for instance, after Dunkirk in 1940, they um, the king visits all the soldiers, whereas the queen visits the hospitals where. Um, uh, the soldiers, you know, the injured soldiers and that kind of thing. So I think perhaps some of the duties were divided up that way. Yes, that makes sense. And uh, your, in terms of your specialism in in India and and that kind of thing, was there any sort of royal uh, relation there in terms of in terms of that period that you think it's worth um, highlighting? Um. <laughs> yeah, good question. I should know off the top of my head, <laughs> but um, but but well, I mean, here's uh, Emperor of India actually, and obviously that that is dropped in 1947 with independence. Um, uh, and one of the interesting things is um, when uh, Indian soldiers often said they were fighting for the King Emperor, which I always found you know quite intriguing, you know. Um, but yeah, so uh, the Indian army is, you know, huge, over 2 million in, in the Second World War, all volunteers, um, and they fight mainly across, in Europe, but but mainly in Southeast Asia, um, uh, quite incredibly, and even, you know, toward, after the end of the war. Um, so a, bit, a big, imp- important part of the, the story of the, of the empire. Um, during the second world war i think you've just made me think of the next history episode that i should try and track down an expert for of the kind of the transition from empire to commonwealth as we have it now and and how that uh, how that sat with the royal family and that that kind of influence and how that changes how they are seen but it's been it's been fascinating hearing um how particularly the the diary entries from sort of normal people and the people working with the royals i think have been really really fascinating is that is there anything that i have missed that i should have asked you that uh you any any last thoughts or stories that you'd like to share with listeners i just wanted to mention sort of one thing you know so partly as a result of the blitz on the 24th of september the king instituted a, a new decoration called the george cross um, for civilian acts of gallantry. So I guess the civilian equipment of the Victoria Cross. Um, uh, and as well, there was uh, another um, decoration called the George Medal, which was for acts of bravery that were not a, as quite as outstanding as um, to merit the George Cross. And around 100 people awarded the George Cross during the war, um, including the island of Malta, for for their bravery under the heavy German bombardment, and also um, and the rest were uh, largely individuals. Um, so one example was uh, Lieutenant Robert Davis, who was awarded the George Cross um, for 
disarming a bomb outside St. Paul's Cathedral in October 1940. Um, uh, he was in the Royal Engineers and um, one of the sappers working with him, George Wiley, also was awarded the, the George Cross. And Robert Davis's George Cross is on um, display. It's in the museum's collection. It's on display in the Lord Ashcroft Gallery uh, in Which the IWM. But uh, I think um, uh, that is definitely a lasting legacy of the King and the experience of the Blitz in particular, I think. The Ashcroft Gallery at the Imperial War Museum, when the um, when we are all allowed out again and return to a degree of normality and can visit museums and explore. If you haven't yet been to the Imperial War Museum, which is just uh, just in South South London, at Lambeth Lambeth North is the nearest tube station. It's just just near Waterloo. Um, it is it is fascinating and fabulous. And there's you know there's uh, big hardware and intimate personal details. But the, the, Ashcroft, the Ashcroft Gallery is a fascinating thing, which is a collection particularly of it's the Victoria Cross, isn't it? That's, that's and, and George Cross as well, yeah. So a, a collection of um, of these medals and the, the stories behind them of the people that that won them, which is, you know, people is always, I think, the thing that is most interesting and those those stories. So thank you so much for digging out those those diary entries and reminiscences and sharing with us all of the um, a bit of insight into what the royal family did and what what life was like for them when they were when they were living through the war listeners thank you for joining us this week we hope this has given you a little bit of a different perspective on things and a bit of a diversion from how things are right now but wherever you are we hope you're staying safe and well and until next time Lord save the queen I should have asked you about how VE Day happened and the celebrations. Are you, are you and the royal family involvement in them? Was there particular? Was there anything particular that was worth yeah. doing a little bit extra? Yeah, Dan, yeah, can yeah, you of course, can yeah. you put yeah, us yeah. back on again? Yep, give me yeah. two seconds. I'm just moving my care bear. Don't ask. What are we coming up to? Would it be 65 years? No, more than that. 70, 75. 75, 75. This, this year. Okay, I'm recording in three, two, one. So we're obviously coming up to 75 years since VE Day and then later, later in the summer VJ Day, but VE Day is very much kind of the, the UK celebration of the end of the war. And what was that like for the royal family? How did they mark it formally and or informally, I guess? So uh, they're, obviously they were very heavily involved. Um, uh, so by midday on the 8th of May, VE Day. So large crowds were gathering across London, yeah, across the West End, outside Buckingham Palace. Um, and the King himself actually allowed his daughters, Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret, Princess Elizabeth in, in her ATS uniform, were allowed to go out into the crowds, escorted by a couple of young officers. Um, uh, because, as he said, they have had never had any fun yet, as he put it. Um and so Churchill's driven down to Buckingham Palace to have lunch with the King on the 8th of May. Uh, and then Churchill broadcast his victory speech on the, at 3 p.m. Uh, and he went on to the House of Commons, but returned later to the palace in the evening. 
Um, uh, but the king, the queen, and uh, Prince, Princess Elizabeth and Prince Margaret were basically out on the balcony of Buckingham Palace many, many times. Um, well, actually, um, eight times. Um, but they, um, uh, and the crowds were just shouting for the, you know, we want the king, we want the king. Um, and the crowds then follow, also followed, you know, Churchill's um, going back to Whitehall and then back to um, Buckingham Palace. And then at 9 p.m., uh, King George VI gave his address to the nation uh, to give thanks to the war was over. Um, uh, like I said, having, having made um, eight appearances on the balcony uh, with the, the famous images of... Um, of all four of them um, on the balcony with the crowds outside, and, and there's some good images in black and white, but also in colour of, of of them all. Um, yeah, quite incredible scenes. It must have been it must have been so strange for Elizabeth and Margaret to sort of go out into all of the all of the hullabaloo, all of the hullabaloo. But actually, I guess it was a, probably quite fitting, given that the royal family had tried to sort of be with with the people through it as as far as they could yeah yeah exactly and 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 even though she was in uniform i think apparently she um she uh tried to pull her cap down and it, it said that you couldn't do that as a as a member of the ats but but she wasn't really recognized apparently so that's one of the great things about uniforms it's much much easier to sort of blend in blend into the world and it you know for the for those those girls teenagers you know they had interesting their, their parents understanding of how much of their life had actually sort of you know those teenage years were so different from from how they might have been and obviously i guess we we see that lasting lasting impact on the queen still yes yeah i think you're right Right, I, th I think that will. I think that will do us, unless there's anything else that I've. Uh, I've